I don't know about you guys, but it's always such a blessing for me to be able to sing with you all. And sometimes with children's ministry stuff going on, I don't get to be in for the, the whole worship service. And it's, it's such a, a joy for me to be able to sing with you. The team does such a, a good job leading us. I'm so grateful for them. As we open God's word this morning, I want to open with a question, and that is, what is it that defines you? What is it that defines you? Or how would other people define you? For many teenagers and young adults in the room or children, often it's, it's the sports that we play that define us, right? I'm, I'm the football player. I'm the basketball player. I, I run track. For others, it might be being a part of band and the certain instrument that you play. For others, it might be the music that you listen to. For others, it might be being part of arts or their grades. I'm, I'm the good student, right? For me, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, all I wanted to be known as was the skater. I lived on my skateboard. I grew my hair long. I thought that was really cool, and then I realized I wasn't very good at skateboarding. So it didn't work out great for me. Then as I got a little bit older, I really wanted to be identified as the metalhead. And all I would listen to is heavy metal music. And so every single piece of clothing I owned was black. And I thought that was awesome. You know, as you grow, some of the things you do look kind of silly in hindsight. But that's, that's how I wanted to be defined growing up. And adults, we're, we're the same way. Often it just doesn't look quite as clicky as it does when we're older or when we're younger. For many of us as adults, we seek to define ourselves by our jobs or our titles. We seek to define ourselves by our children, by our wealth, our status. Maybe some of us seek to define ourselves by the political party that we identify with. Others, maybe you identify yourself based on the sports team that you follow. Go Broncos. <laughs> but we seek to define ourselves in these different ways, right? But the question is, I, I want you to think about this morning, not just how do you define yourself, which is important, but how would other people around you define you, those that know you best? What is it about you that they think of when they think of you? This morning, as we read an ancient text, this was written a long time ago, I think we will see that humanity really hasn't changed that much, and what we need hasn't really changed that much, and what God desires in us and of us hasn't changed at all. My name is Ryan Sickinger. I'm the family pastor at Herod Faith Church, which means I get to oversee the children's and student ministries, which is a great blessing for me. Our lead pastor, Mike McDonald, was able to get away with some of his family um, for this week. And so it's my privilege to be able to open God's word with you all this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to flip over to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And we are going to be in chapter 6 this morning. Now, as we open to the book of Deuteronomy, I'd just like to say that I feel like Deuteronomy is one of the most underappreciated books of the Bible. Really, any of the books that are heavy with law tend to get um, not a lot of popularity with people. But this is one of the most beautiful books in all of Scripture. It's one of my favorite books. And really, the context of what Deuteronomy is, is it's essentially Moses writing his own eulogy. 
At the very end of the book, he passes the baton to Joshua, and the final chapter is actually of Moses passing away. These are his final words to God's people. To briefly recap for you guys how Moses now got to this point as he's writing this at the very end of his life. Moses was born in Egypt and his parents were fearful that he was going to be killed. So they had to conceal him. They sent him down the river and he grew up in Pharaoh's household after a kind of treacherous incident, um, which someone ended up dead. You could call that murder, whatever it was, Moses did it. He fled from Egypt He ran away, and in the wilderness, he had this incredible encounter with God at the burning bush. And God called him to go back to Egypt and to save the people who were crying out before God because of the heavy slavery they were under in Egypt. And he was kind of a bumbling fool about it. He wasn't the most well-spoken or articulate leader, but God used him, and he sent him back. And through all these amazing miracles of God, what we often refer to as the plagues, God saved his people out from the hand of Pharaoh. He brought them through the Red Sea. And then at Mount Sinai, he gave his law to them. Now, it's important to remember in this whole story, and I'm I'm going like really high level here and leaving a lot of details out. But it's important to remember that God saved his people before he ever gave any commands of them. He purchased them for himself. He brought them out of the land. He saved them. And then it is after saving them that he gives them the law. Now, it's important to know that because God accomplished something for them as he gave them a law. Well, after giving them that law at Sinai, Moses comes down from the mountain and they pretty quickly descended into idolatry. And it's because of that that they didn't get to enter straight into the promised land, but ended up wandering around in the desert, primarily because of their disobedience as well as Moses's. And so they've now been wandering around in the desert, and they're right at the tail end of that, about to enter into the promised land, which Moses will never get to do. And that's where we get the writing of the book of Deuteronomy. It's at the very end of his life. And they're now decades removed from the giving of that law at Sinai. So often when we read the Bible, sometimes we forget how time passes. But 40 years is a long time. It's probably not something that was fresh on their mind at this point. So Moses sees it as necessary to remind them of God's covenant that he made with them. And he does so in the book of Deuteronomy in an absolutely beautiful way. Because through it all, as he reminds them of the law of God... He intertwines with that the necessity of loving God and that being the source of any act of obedience. And that's what we're going to see highlighted so clearly in the text we're in this morning. So if you don't get anything else out from where we are going, I hope that you see that our love for God should be exclusive, all-consuming, and on mission. Our love for God should be exclusive, all-consuming, and on mission. If you could go ahead and stand with me. We're in a very short passage this morning, so why don't you stand with me as we read God's Word. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 4, we'll go through verse 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated and let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we meant the words that we just sang in that last song, that we would be ready to hear your words for us, God, that you would be sending your Holy Spirit forth in power, and that you would be blessing your church this hour. God, as is our custom, we want to pray for another church in the area, and this morning we want to lift up to you Refuge Church and Pastor Ryan Bestelmeyer, and Lord, we pray that you'd be speaking to that congregation through your word this morning, that you'd be challenging them in their walk with you, that you'd be stirring their love and affections for you and helping them to love and live for you. And so, God, we lift up Refuge Church. And God, for us as well, we pray that you would stir our affections this morning. God, we're so aware of how easy it is to forget our first love. Would you help us to delight in you alone, God? God, I pray that you would obliterate and just destroy any sense of nominal Christianity that's in our midst. If we're able to compartmentalize you and just have you be as one of many things we care about, but can set you aside at other times, God, would you remove that from us? God, I pray that you'd help our love for you to overflow into our families into our communities, and into our workplace, God. That it wouldn't be something that we try to bring up or try to force. That it would just be the natural overflow of our hearts because of how much we love you. Please help our love for you, God, to be exclusive. God, we don't want to share any space in our heart with anything else. We want to be fully devoted to you, God. Would you help our love to be all-consuming, would it affect every aspect of our being and every aspect of our life, God? And God, would you help our love for you to be on mission? God, it is not our desire to become spiritually obese. We want to be fed in order so that thou pour out and it can be shared with others. Is in the only name of Jesus that can save our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Does your life ever feel fragmented to you? Like you're always trying to juggle your various responsibilities. Maybe sometimes you feel like you're just trying to keep all the plates spinning in your life. You're always swapping hats from employee to maybe father or mother to student to child, right? We swap all these different hats and try to keep everything going. Do you ever feel like your life or your faith is just a bunch of puzzle pieces that seem separated that you're trying to figure out how they all fit together? God did not design it to be this way. In fact, although life certainly is filled with diversity and will require differing responsibilities, God's will for us is actually incredibly simple and it's singular. Is that our love for God would be exclusive, all-consuming, 
and on mission, that our love for God would be primary to everything. It'd be overarching everything. It would be what holds all things together in our life. And to begin, let us start by looking at verses 4 through 6 and consider what it means to have an all-consuming love for the only Lord. Let's begin reading verse 4 through 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To begin, let's consider our exclusive God in verse 4. Verse 4 begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first word is hear. Are you listening this morning? God has something to say to you. From there, Moses issues the declaration that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is one of those verses that could easily have an entire sermon preached on it. But at its core, it must be understood that this is a statement of the exclusivity of God, both in the hearts of the people and of the fact of reality in the cosmos. You see, the Lord, our God, is one. That's that's identifying him in our hearts. The Lord, our God, individually, is one. But it's also a statement of the very nature of God. The Lord is one. Now, many people point to this verse as a proof text for monotheism. If you've ever studied the doctrine of the Trinity, this verse was probably quoted to help explain how God is one. I don't think that is wrong. I think this verse can be used to support that teaching. But I don't think the teaching of the Trinity is Moses' primary emphasis in this verse. In the previous chapter, as Moses recounted the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, to which they are now declaring the reality, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this verse, we are reminded of an ever-important truth that our hearts and our culture are so prone to reject or forget That is, the exclusivity of God. Although all of us are prone to various forms of idolatry, my guess is that most in this room, where we are today in Rio Rancho, in this church, don't struggle with the concept of monotheism. However, as you engage your neighbors or your family members, do you tend to have a kind of live and let live mentality? Like, I believe in the God of the Bible. That's what works for me. But if Buddhism or humanism or atheism or whatever else ism works for you, that's good for you. It's not how it ought to be. You see, we serve an exclusive God. And there's an exclusive path to him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to be very clear this morning that if your faith and trust is in any so-called God other than the triune God of the Bible is not a faith that will save you because it's not a God that can save you. Now you may be thinking 
that this exclusivity is kind of bigoted or arrogant. How can you say that your God is better than any other gods? The exclusivity is not backwards thinking. It's beautiful. Let me give you an illustration of how exclusivity can be beautiful. The covenant commitment that my wife and I entered into marriage is extremely exclusive. She is my wife, and absolutely no other woman is my wife, and vice versa. That covenant does not emphasize me loving other people less. That covenant emphasizes me loving her extremely and exceedingly more than anyone else. Our love for God can't be shared because he is the only one worthy of that love. God wants our exclusive love. I would implore you to listen up about our incredibly beautiful and gracious exclusive God as we move into the next verse here. We will see how the exclusivity of God should lead to an all-consuming or a total love of God. Read with me verse 5. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Lynn just read to us one of the examples in the New Testament as Jesus would quote this as the greatest commandment. Now, the Old Testament is filled with a lot of commandments. But Jesus was very specific in quoting this exact verse as the greatest commandment. We should perk up our ears and think, well, why is this so important? Why is this so much more important than the other commandments? Because are the other commandments not important? No. All the commandments are extremely important, but he immediately answered this as being the greatest commandment. That should make us listen up as to why. Let me ask you guys, is there any part of you that is not included between all your heart soul, and might? Is there any aspect of you that is not covered by that? No. The purpose here is not to explain that there are three parts to the human ontology or to say it another way. He's not trying to cut us up into three different pieces and saying you need to love God with all those pieces. Instead, the implication is to love God totally, to love God in a way that is all-consuming, To love God in such a way that every iota of your being is sold out to him and him alone. That all of you loves God. Let me re-emphasize to you that this is the greatest commandment. That we would love God with everything that we have. Now think of some of these other commandments. They're, They're important, right? He didn't quote the greatest commandment was not murdering. Although that's certainly an important command, right? We won't get very far if everyone killed each other. It's important, but it's not the most important. He didn't list theft or adultery or paying your tithes or feeding the hungry. None of those were the most important commands, even though Jesus talked about all kinds of different things in his ministry. He talked about feeding the poor quite a bit, but he didn't say that was the most important commandment. What did he say? It was to love him with everything. 
Why don't we do that? Why don't we see that? Aren't so many of us prone to just wanting to follow the rules? Just do what he says without any love attached to it? And how how exactly do we do this, right? How do we love God with everything? That sounds pretty hard. How do we give him absolutely every aspect of our lives? How do we do that? We're fickle and often faithless people. How in the world can we love God with this type of intensity that he's talking about? Look at the people of the Old Testament and how often they forgot about the exclusivity of God and wandered off into idolatry. I mean, consider that this word was being given to the Israelites after they'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, many of them falling into idolatry. Moses included, forgot to follow the commands of God as he struck the rock. Did not the love of God, didn't they see that as more important? We're quick to forget these things. You don't have to flip there, but listen to what the New Testament teaches us about this type of love of God in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read starting in verse 7. I think we get a picture how we can have any hope of loving God in this type of way. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then a few verses later, in verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. This is not something we can do detached from from God. This is not something we can do to earn our relationship with God. This is something we do in response to what God has done for us. Living a life of an all-consuming love for God can only make sense if we have experienced new life in Jesus Christ because of the love he's shown us and given to us. This is not something we can earn. And you see, it's always primary to our obedience. And never, we can never obey our way into loving God more. It's because God loved us and we love him that we can even attempt to obey any of his commands. Which leads into the next verse where we will see this concept of loving obedience. Listen to verse 6. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The book of Deuteronomy is filled with the law of God. Moses, as we are reading these verses, just finished reminding the Israelites of the Ten Commandments. And make no mistake that God desires obedience. These aren't simply arbitrary, optional commands that God is giving. 
God requires not only obedience to his law, but he requires perfect obedience. That is why Jesus came to die, is because he was the only one who could perfectly obey the law, and thus the only one who could provide sufficient atonement for our sins. But foundational to any act of obedience, God desires our love. Listen to what he says here. In these words, he's talking about the commandments he's just given, that I command you today, he says, you should do them whether you like it or not. No, he says, they shall be on your heart. We should love the law of the Lord. The classic John 3.16 highlights the fact that for God so loved the world as the foundation that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's because of his love. Here Moses is reminding them to keep these commandments on their hearts. Many of you know my two beautiful little girls, Piper and Hannah. Now, Hannah is still pretty young, so our expectations of her are age-appropriate and thus pretty limited as she just turns one or just turned one years old earlier this month. But Piper, on the other hand, is old enough that we are expecting more and more of her at this point. And we expect her, when we ask her to do something, to obey. We tell her to go pick up her toys or to answer when she's called or to not run into oncoming traffic, right? Like we expect her to obey in those moments. And because many of you guys know Piper, I'm sure you guys know that every single time we ask her to do something, she does it immediately with a big smile on her face, right? (laughs) Not so much. Now, some of the time she does obey, but she does so begrudgingly. She may stomp off to her room, or as we ask her to do something, she kind of whines about it, right? And she does it, but she's not very happy about it. And she makes it known that she's not very happy about it. Now, as a parent, am I super proud and impressed and just filled with joy when my daughter begrudgingly does something I ask her to do? No. It's, it's like slightly better than like anarchy and chaos, but that's it. Like, like I'm, it's better than had she just not done it at all defiantly, but not much, you know? It's just slightly better. That's certainly not what I desire of her. Now, this doesn't happen even close to every time, but sometimes when I ask her to do something, she just smiles and says, yes, daddy, and goes off to do it. And there's few things that are actually as joyful as a parent than when your child obeys and they do so not begrudgingly, but just because They love you, and they don't mind doing it, right? It's because of the relationship they have with you, and they just go about doing that. Why would God want our begrudging obedience? Why wouldn't he want our loving obedience, understanding all that he's done for us and accomplished for us? We will not obey God's law perfectly, not even close. And often when we do obey It will be more begrudging than it will be joyful. But friends, we must fix our eyes upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus not only obeyed perfectly, never sinning once, but he did so out of love. 
as we seek to be more and more conformed to his image, we must seek to obey God's commands for us, knowing that it's what's truly best for us, and it will bring him the most glory, the one we love. We must never dissect love and obedience, but allow our love for God to lead us to walk in greater obedience. Remember that it was Jesus that said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But our love must proceed our obedience. Do you feel like God has become an accessory in your life? Is he just one of the many relationships that you know you need to keep up with? Like, I need to send mom a card on Mother's Day, and I can't forget that my brother's birthday is coming up in a couple weeks. Oh, and I should really pray. I I haven't done that in a while. Guys ever feel like that? Like, he's just one of the many relationships that we're kind of trying to juggle. All of us understand how easy it can be to move God to the fringes of our lives. We have work, family, friends, entertainment, hobbies, and these phones in our pocket that buzz incessantly, always distracting us from other things we'd like to be doing, right? Like, it's easy to become distracted. It's easy to take our eyes off of Christ. I want you to listen in. God is not telling you to move him to the top of your priority list. That might sound weird to you. You're like, what? God is not telling you to move him to the top of your priority list. Like, I got to love God first, and then my family comes like just under that, and then whatever other responsibilities I have. God is calling you to love him supremely, and that any other love would just be an extension of your love for him. That your love for God would fuel your love for your family. That your love for God would drive you to want to be a good employee or a good student. That your love for God would be infinitely superior to anything else. And that it would drive everything else. If we have a priority list, it can be one thing. Loving God. Everything else is just a working out of that. But yet, it's so easy to compartmentalize and just shift things around. God wants our soul affection. He wants our all-consuming love. As we start the book of Job next week, we will see a man who models this well as every earthly thing is stripped from him. All he's left with is his walk with the Lord. How's your love for God this morning? If it feels cold or distant, God is not far away. And he desires to have communion with you. If you're feeling that way, I just want to encourage you to do three things today and going forward. Because all of us fall into those seasons where we just feel kind of disconnected from God. That's normal. I need to encourage you to do three things. The first is to tell somebody. And when I say tell somebody, I mean like before you leave the room today. Like tell someone. If you don't know anyone in here, Hi, my name's Ryan. Come talk to me afterwards. Tell someone, okay? We, we try to put on this brave face so often and just like white knuckle our faith all on our own. Like I'm struggling, but I'll figure it out on my own and we don't ask for help. And we just try to do it all by ourselves. God created us to be in community. 
And God created other people around you to help you when you're in those seasons where you feel disconnected from God. You need to tell someone about it. I don't know if you've ever made a commitment to yourself and not told anyone. Is it pretty easy to forget about that commitment the next day? Right? We're fickle. We might feel it in the moment, but then once we walk out that door and eat lunch, that feeling's gone. But if you tell someone about it, they might ask you about tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday and next Sunday. Tell someone. Second thing, if you feel just kind of disconnected from God or that your love has just kind of grown a little cold, to read his word. If you say, I feel like God's not talking to me, that's because you're not listening. God has spoken. He speaks. His word is speaking to us, but if we don't open it and we don't listen to it, we won't hear him. One of the most common things I hear when someone feels far from God, and this isn't true all the time, but a lot of the time, it's because their Bible reading has gone down to nearly nothing. I'm glad you're at church. I'm glad you're hearing the word of God. But we don't just need God for 45 minutes as the preaching on Sunday morning. We need to hear from God throughout the week. This is an all-consuming endeavor. We need to be in his word. If you don't read, then listen to it. Like, you can get audio Bibles on your phone for free in like 30 seconds. You can do this. Listen to the word of God. He's speaking. The question is, are you listening If you feel cold, get in his word. Particularly if you're a believer and it's been maybe a prolonged season of feeling this, I'd encourage you to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. They will greatly minister to you as you feel far from God. And if you're a new believer, or maybe you're just checking these things out and you don't have a walk with God yet, I'd encourage you to start in one of the Gospels, particularly if you start in the book of Luke and then read through Acts which is really just one book broken up into two parts. You'll get everything from the beginning of Christ coming to earth all the way through the history of the early church. But read God's word. He's speaking. Are you listening? Lastly, I just encourage you to pray. I know none of this is like mind-blowing pastoral advice for you guys. Like read your Bible and pray and talk to someone. But we... We forget sometimes. Pray. If you don't feel close to God, are you talking to him? Think about your relationship with your your spouse or your best friend. Are you going to feel close to them if you never talk to them? What kind of relationship is that? Pray. I don't just mean at dinner time or before you go to bed at night, although certainly do that. That's, That's a good thing to do. I mean, every time you think to do it. When you're driving in the car, when you're grocery shopping, when you're sitting at your desk, if you think it to do it, do it. Just reach out to God. Sometimes my prayer is, God, I don't even know what to pray, but I know I need to pray, and so this is my prayer. Amen. Like, sometimes that's all I got, right? But if you think to pray, you need to pray. God wants to talk to you. He wants your love, and if you want to stir that love, you need to be in communication with him. Our love for God should be exclusive and all-consuming. And if that is the case, if our love for God is exclusive and it is all-consuming, it will naturally push us towards action, which we will lean into in these final few verses. 
As God stirs in us and grows our affections for him, he desires to move us towards mission and devotion. In this mission and devotion, again, God does not want a simple compartmentalized checking of the box. Oh, I did my mission thing this week. I did my devotion thing this week. He wants total, all-consuming mission and devotion because he alone is worthy of it. Let us read verses 7 through 9, and I want you to hear of the all-consuming nature of what we are being called towards, an all-consuming mission and devotion. Read with me verses 7 through 9. It says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is one of those verses that either through training or simply through conversations, I probably quote a hundred times a year. Being in family ministries, this is one of the most profound verses in understanding the task given to disciple children in the ways of the Lord. And I will unapologetically be pointing out the implications these verses have for us in here that our parents. But I believe this application and scope of these verses far transcends just the parents in the room and has an important word for all of us to hear. To begin, I want to point out that in these verses, verses 7 through 9, I think they function more as applications of verses 4 through 6, as in completely new commandments. Now, I do think they have implications on us, but I think it's an application of that. I think Moses here is giving the people important principles to live out these truths rather than dogmatic commands. Let's begin by looking at verse 7. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This begins by telling us that we should teach them. Them meaning the commandments of God that should be on our heart. That's what we are to teach them diligently to our children. That these verses must be instilled and passed on to the next generation. This is a continuation of what Moses wrote in verse 2. If you look back up there, it says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. This is something that needs to be passed on to the next generation. And this will continue through the end of the chapter with this type of language of passing on to the next generation. And I want to remind us here at this point of where Moses is at in his life. He's about to pass away. And I'm sure probably the reality of this covenant being passed on to the next generation and them understanding it and taking hold of it and moving it forward is more real to him now than ever. He sees the necessity of these things. As well, I want to point out the word that in our English translation, it it comes into three words, says teach them diligently. The Hebrew word here really carries with it an emphasis on repetition or repetitiously. Now, often when we hear hear the word diligently, we think of intensity, right? We need to teach them diligently, like we need to try really hard. And I don't think it 
says less than that, but I think more of what it's saying is regularly or consistently or repetitiously, we need to be teaching children these things. That's what the word carries with it. He goes on to say, in the rest of the verse, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Do you see the picture that is being painted here? What aspect of life is not covered in these verses? Can you think or name a time when you are neither sitting, walking, lying down, or rising? What's the point? It's the entirety of life. We are to be teaching and talking of these things in such a way as to encourage the gospel to go forth in the next generation in whatever we're doing. Now, again, I believe these verses are principled, and so I think there are many applications here for those that don't have or will never have children. But let's begin with the explicit application in this passage, which is that of parents. And I just want to point out three things in this. Again, we could talk about this all day, and I, I would love to because I love this verse, but there's three things I think that parents need to grasp. And the first is that biblical discipleship of your children is not primarily programmatic. They say that again. Biblical discipleship of your children is not primarily programmatic. There's great programs out there that will help disciple your children. I don't know if you know my job, but it's essentially to run some of those programs. So I'm for programs. They're good. They help. But primarily, ministries of the church, like going to children's ministry or student ministry, sending your kid to Awana, or just sending them off to the family pastor, that's not God's primary intent on how to disciple children. In fact, every single time the Bible talks about discipling children, he addresses one party specifically, which leads to the second point that biblical discipleship of children is primarily, not only, but primarily a parent's job. It's your job. This is not something God has given you that you're able to outsource. You might not be very good at baseball, so you might help someone to help your kid learn baseball. You can't just hire a tutor for your child's discipleship. If you are a parent, God has called you to engage in this task. Now, there's different ways you can go about doing this. We just had a family equipping brunch here a couple months ago, and we talked a lot about family worship, which is certainly something I would encourage or doing a regular family devotional. I think that helps in this type of thing, particularly when you think of the repetitious nature that's being explained here, that daily you're going over the truths of God with your children. I think that's good. I think what's even more in view in this verse is not even a formal thing, but an informal thing. What's grasped in the way that he explains this? He says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Do you get the informal aspect of this? We have a great opportunity to disciple and to teach our kids the word of God while eating breakfast, while driving in the car, when our kid goes through a hard time, 
sitting with them at that moment and pointing them towards what God's Word says. We have a great opportunity in engaging them in their education with the truths of God's Word, in their athletics, in the movies that you watch as a family, is the music you listen to. Simply put, all of life. And we're so good at compartmentalizing these things. We put on our, our parent hat at church that like, all right, now we're sending them over there. That's, I'm discipling my kid. And then we walk out the door and don't talk about Jesus until we get in the car for church next week. It's supposed to be in all of life, both formal ways that we're trying to do this, we should be intentional, but also in all the informal opportunities to point our kids towards the God of the Bible. We can't compartmentalize this. And our kids will see right through that. If you think your kids won't catch on that dad only cares about God on Sunday morning, you're a fool. If you think your kids won't catch on that you only read your Bible when the pastor tells you to at church and they never see mom and dad open the Bible otherwise, our kids are observant. All of life needs to be utilized to pour into our kids and disciple them and share the love of God with them and his word with them. We have so many opportunities. We ought to take them. The third point I want to point out for application for parents is that biblical discipleship of your children doesn't end when they turn 18. Biblical discipleship of your children doesn't end when they turn 18. Now, it's going to look different. I'm able to discipline my three-year-old in a way that you can't do with your 30-year-old. That would be odd, okay? So it looks different as your kids become adults, and you need to treat them as adults. But parent, you never get to retire from being a parent. That's a responsibility God has given you for the entirety of your life. Pour the word of God into them. And guess what? When your grandkids come up, look at verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Start discipling your grandkids when they show up. Be involved. Be engaged. It's going to look different. You need to honor and respect your adult children. But never give up. Never stop praying for them. Never stop pointing them to the truth. It's not over. It's over when we're dead or the Lord comes back. We have a job to do. And it certainly doesn't end at 18. For the rest of us, for those of you maybe that don't have children... I think there's a lot that you can actually pull from verses 7 through 9, and particularly here in verse 7. The first is you should see that your faith shouldn't end with you. Your faith shouldn't end with you. This passage we are in today is quoted by Jesus and known as the great commandment, but listen to the similarity here of verse 7 with the great commission in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then listen to this in verse 20. This is part of the Great Commission that gets forgotten a lot. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. All of us bear the responsibility and charge to pass on our faith to the next generation of believers. And in the new covenant of Christ's blood, this isn't reserved to our biological offspring. It's for every tribe, nation, and tongue. This involves evangelism, but also discipleship. Notice that the Great Commission includes us to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. Just like in these verses, we must not only think programmatically in this call. This encompasses dinner time and work and hobbies and all of life should be all-consuming. We regularly promote here a little book by Mark Dever um, called Discipling, and in it he, he gives the example that one of the ways he disciples some of the guys in his church is he brings them along with him grocery shopping because he just has a busy schedule, and that's when he can fit them in. So he has these guys he's mentoring come along with him grocery shopping as he's filling up the cart and talking to them about Jesus. I think that's a great picture. We miss so many opportunities. I get that we're busy, but how can you be showing and shepherding others towards our Savior in your busyness, in the day-to-day of life? How can your daily life encompass this calling? God wants us to be in a discipleship and devotional mindset when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's all of life. Again, I want to emphasize that I think Moses is using these less as dogmatic commands and rather is painting a picture for us of principally how we ought to be living out loving God in an all-consuming way. So I just want to implore you as followers of Christ to take a step forward. You haven't arrived yet. I don't know if you know this. Neither have I. Take a step forward. Parents, maybe you are overwhelmed because right now you really aren't doing anything to disciple your kids other than bring them here. Well, that's a great first step. Take a step forward. How can you be praying with them more? How can you start reading the Bible with them? How can you utilize car rides? Take a step forward. Make progress. For those of you without kids, how can you take a step forward in discipling others and sharing your faith more in the day-to-day life? Are you discipling anyone? If not, maybe take a step forward. Reach out to a younger brother or sister in the faith and invite them to have coffee or lunch or something once a week and just start reading through a book of the Bible together. Take a step forward. None of us have arrived. We all have room to grow in this area. And think about how can I just encompass this in my daily life? Maybe that's inviting a younger gal in church over while you're folding laundry and you can talk together. Like, we overcomplicate these things sometimes. Point others to Christ in your daily life. What's God calling you towards? Move towards that. In these final verses, we see a further application of how we ought to love God in an all-consuming way, and that is we are to carry and to cover to carry and to cover. Read with me verses 8 and 9. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. To begin here, Moses describes how we are to carry God's word with them in a very tangible way, literally strapping to their hands and foreheads scriptures. And they did that. Not every single one of them, but it it was a known Jewish practice to do that, to carry God's word with them. We see here a picture of the necessity of God's word in our life, not merely on Sunday morning or during our devotional, but being carried with us everywhere we go. Now, I personally don't think this is a literal command, and since I don't see any of you with Bible verses strapped to your hands or foreheads, Uh, Maybe some of you have Bible verses tattooed like me, but I didn't do it for these reasons. Like, I don't think any of us are following this legalistically in the sense that we absolutely have to do this. But I think what's painting is a picture of what we ought to be doing in carrying God's word with us. The implication is that we need the Bible throughout our daily lives. We need reminded of God's work and his word in our daily lives lives, not only for ourselves, but to share God's truth with others as we are going about our lives. How are you going to point your kids towards what God's word says in the car or at dinner time or whatever if you don't know God's word and you can't reference it? If we're going to be living this out in an all-consuming way, we need to be taking God's word with us to share with our children, our friends, or our coworkers. Guys, if you have a smartphone, you never need to be without the word of God. Really easy. And we're glued to those things. So I'm guessing that most of you have that with you at most times. Or you can just carry a book. It's not that heavy. We are to carry God's word with us. Sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. In the next verse, we see that it should be defining over our homes. Again, I'm not going to take this as a literal command, although I think this one's actually awesome kind of an awesome picture. If any of you want to go home and plaque this on your doorpost or your gate, it's it's a pretty cool way to define your home. So go for it. I I don't think it's we're required to, but it is a beautiful picture. I think what's being envisioned here is that God defines our homes. His word is what ought to cover our household. When someone comes over for dinner or a play date or just to hang out, would it be obvious to them that you're believers? I'm not talking about your artwork, but the atmosphere of your home. Is it obvious that like the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost of the Israelites in Egypt, does the blood of Christ cover your home? Is it hard to talk for 30 or 40 minutes without Jesus coming up in conversation? I love the picture that's painted here in Deuteronomy 6, which is why it is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, and it's one of my deep desires that my children would experience this type of love for God in all of their life. And I certainly know I won't do it perfectly, but it's a beautiful picture to aspire towards. When life is all said and done, this is all we should truly desire, that our love for God would be exclusive, all-consuming, and on mission. When I think of our church, Faith Church, If we as a congregation don't grasp this, we have no hope of effective gospel-fueled ministry. If love is not our root, 
we will never see true gospel fruit. If our love for God is not the root of everything we're doing, we can run all these impressive ministries. We can do all these impressive things. We can put on an incredible show. But if it's not rooted in a love, our love for the Lord, it's going to be fruitless. We cannot love unless we know who first loved us. So to return to my opening question, what defines you? What defines you? If you are in Christ, that is your identity in Christ and the love he has set upon you. That is what defines you. But how would others define you? How would others define you? Or maybe to be pointed, how would your children define you? My prayer is that they would see that above all else, we love God. That is the overarching characteristic of our life. And that our love for God would be exclusive, all-consuming, and on mission. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you've placed upon us. We know that none of us could love you unless you first loved us. None of us could be your children unless Christ loved us perfectly and gave his life for us. And so, Lord, we come to you just humbled and grateful this morning. We are so grateful for your love for us, God. God, I pray for anyone in here that has yet to experience the love of God, that your Holy Spirit would just make that exceedingly evident upon their heart right now. God, you love them more than anything could ever possibly love them, and I pray that their heart would know that. And God, I pray as you continue to stir our affections, as you continue to draw us toward yourself, that you would do so in a way that it would infect every aspect of our life, that there wouldn't be a single part of us that is not contaminated by your love for us and our love for you. That it would be what defines us. That others would know us by our love. That our love would be exclusive. That it would only be to you. That our love would be all-consuming. It would infect every aspect of us, God. God, I pray that our love would be on mission. That our love for you would not be something we keep to ourselves. We would not hoard our love for you. We would give it away to our kids and our friends at church and our coworkers and our family members to whoever. That our love for you would be put on full display. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. As Pastor Ryan was preparing this message, um, the words to the song, Be Thou My Vision, came to his attention. And I can't think of a song with more fitting lyrics for us to sing as we close this service, I, I would just encourage you this week in, in obedience to the greatest commandments to sing this song, to pray the lyrics of this song, to meditate on the words. And I think it would help bolster all of us in loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Would you please stand? Let's sing Be Thou My Vision together.
reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, still be my vision, O can't think of more appropriate words to sing as we close. One of the ways that Mike always closes the service that I think is particularly appropriate based on the word we are just in is that faith church, you are loved. We are loved by God. You are loved by us. So let us go and love our great God. If we can pray for you in absolutely any way, please come forward out of service. There'll people up on both sides. We'd love to pray for you. I encourage you with that, com- that instruction I gave you, that if you feel you're far from God, tell someone about it before you leave today. Don't wait. Today is the day of obedience. It's always easier to obey tomorrow, but that never seems to work out. Follow God today. Faith Church, you are loved. Thank you.